thank you very much for the invitation to be with you here tonight uh, and speak with you. Um, it's been a great pleasure uh, to set up this trip. It's been um, tremendously enlightening already. Uh, today, uh, we visited a chicken hatchery, an oyster, uh, uh, an oyster processing operation, and uh, a crab picking house. I haven't had a chance to change my suit since then, so if you're downwind of the podium, <laughs> you have my apologies. I'll be discussing the economy uh, tonight, uh, both current economic conditions and what the future might hold. If I uh, stray from the microphone and, and I, I, you need to bring me back, if you just raise your hand, uh, that will not be impolite, and I will uh, do my best to, to keep on, on the mic here. Before I begin, I say this at the beginning of all my speeches, because of our structure and the independence of the different reserve banks, um, the views I express here tonight are going to be my own and won't necessarily be um, views shared by any particular other member of the Federal Open Market Committee. So um, I should say at the outset uh, that my views about the economy are shaped by um, a lot of analysis. Uh, ongoing analysis of uh, economic data that we get um, both at the national level and at the regional level. And that analysis goes on within all throughout the Federal Reserve System, but includes analysis done by uh, economists and staff at the, the Richmond Fed. I rely particularly heavily on that. But my views about the economy are also um, very importantly inf influenced by the wealth of information that we glean from direct contacts that we have with people around the 5th Federal Reserve District, which, as Scott said, goes from Maryland to South Carolina, includes um, most of West Virginia. There is no good substitute, in my mind, uh, for talking with actual economic decision makers and learning from them uh, about their particular situation and hearing from them about their concerns about what the future might hold. Indeed, that's exactly what brings my Richmond Fed colleagues and me to this region. Um, it's a desire to learn more about some of the key drivers of the Eastern Shore economy, and that's what we've been doing. As I said, I visited uh, agribusinesses today. Tomorrow, we're going to learn more about uh, state-of-the-art technology that's transforming the space and uh, defense industries. Uh, so we're very much looking forward to that. And the reason we do this is that making sense of the incoming economic data as well as the, the trends we see on the ground throughout the district are just much more difficult without the perspective that we derive from really exploring people's minds, finding out what they're thinking, what they're feeling about current conditions, what they're expecting about future economic conditions. So these types of trips are, are, are absolutely essential for us. The Fed's ability to uh, gather such information, uh, it, the extent to which it's committed to gathering such information is greatly enhanced by the decentralized federated structure of the system, something that Scott mentioned, that there's 12 separate Federal Reserve Banks. And this is a subject I'll return to for a few minutes at the end of my talk. Um, but first, let's talk about the economy. So current economic conditions are, to a large extent, uh, still being shaped by the process of recovering from the recession we experienced 
uh, from in 2008 and 2009, from the end of 2007 through the middle of 2009. This was the worst contraction in economic activity since the 1930s. Real GDP, that's gross domestic product, this is, you don't have to know what that stands for, but it's the best measure we have of total production or total output in the economy, fell by more than 5% from the end of 07 through the middle of 2009. And that, but that figure itself, more than 5%, I think could well understate the damage this contraction caused. New housing starts fell by 80%. We lost eight and a half million jobs, and that caused the unemployment rate to more than double uh, by the time it topped out at over 10%. And household wealth fell by $16 trillion during the recession, fall of about 25%. It's no exaggeration to call this the great contraction. As we emerged from the recession, a number of economists, and I count myself among those, uh, we're cautiously optimistic. Um, as a nation, we've proved extraordinarily resilient uh, at times in the past, and we typically exit from a recession growing at a fairly rapid clip. This hasn't happened this time. Output increased only 3% last year, and in the first half of this year, uh, growth slowed to a, a very anemic eight-tenths of a percent annual rate. That's well below the longer run growth trend that is widely estimated to be about two and a half to three percent at an annual rate. Unemployment has remained stubbornly high, um, around nine percent, nine point one percent according to the latest reading, and that's because job growth has been very sluggish by comparison with past recoveries. So here we are, more than two years after the recession officially ended, having a hard time making up the ground we lost in this great contraction. So what accounts for this mediocre performance? Obviously, housing construction has uh, contracted and remains depressed, I think is the right word for it. Earlier, in early recessions, housing often fell very sharply during the contraction, but rebounded quickly. And it made significant contributions to real growth during recoveries from past recessions. This time, though, the housing boom that preceded the recession left us with a huge oversupply of vacant homes. And not only that, the average size of homes seems to be larger than a typical household one. So both in terms of number and scale, we have more housing stock than we really need, given our current income, given prices, given income prospects. These vacant homes continue to weigh on many local markets around their country, and that dampens the demand for new construction. And that's put a damper on growth. Since the end of the recession, housing starts have averaged less than half of the rate they, they, were, they occurred at in the mid-1990s. That was a sort of a moderate time in the housing industry before the big boom, not comparing it to the high watermark, uh, but compared to the mid-90s, we're, we're below half of housing construction at that rate. <clears throat> So while housing's played a big role, consumer spending has played arguably an even larger role in the moderate pace of this recovery. Household spending normally contributes strongly to the, the recovery. So in a recession, consumer spending falls kind of sharply. But at the end of the recession, households start to anticipate brighter times ahead, 
and they begin to expand consumption, even consumption spending, even if their income is still temporarily low. Uh, so we get this phenomenon of cons consumer spending picking up before um, anticipated income growth picks up. In this recovery, though, real consumer spending has grown at a pace that's fairly modest and not strong enough to generate uh, the rapid overall uh, growth that we've seen in other recoveries. This cautious pace of consumer spending should be fairly understandable, though. Growth in employment and real income has been quite sluggish, and the large decline in household net worth, the $16 trillion we lost during the recession, I think has given consumers ample reason to focus, instead of on spending, on repaying debts and building up a stock of liquid savings again. So while housing and consumer spending have uh, accounted for a good part of the sluggishness of this recovery, there are some other sectors that have actually done pretty well. It's important to, to, for a balanced picture of the economy to keep those sectors in mind. So I'll mention two. Business investment in equipment and software has increased substantially since the end of the recession. Many firms apparently are continuing to find cost-effective ways to improve business processes, increase the quality of what they sell, uh, or enhance efficiency all through employing new capital outlays, deploying new capital outlays, despite, and they're doing this despite the fact that overall demand is growing at a pace that's slower than in some previous uh, recoveries. Second category I'll mention is exports. Exports of goods and services have contributed positively uh, to this recovery, even in comparison to previous recoveries. Many emerging economies are experiencing sustained periods of rapid growth. And as their economies modernize, they need durable goods embodying state-of-the-art technology. And this is where the United States has a strong comparative advantage still. So for a balanced picture of the economy, you have to keep in mind that we have strength in exports and strength in business investment in equipment and software. So at the beginning of this year, many analysts expected uh, economic growth to pick up, even after accounting for the weakness we've seen since the middle of 2009 in housing and consumer spending. Pent-up demand, the idea was, would overcome residual caution for many households, and housing construction would gradually return to more normal levels. Several temporary factors earlier this year have intervened and uh, kept that forecast from coming to fruition. The earthquake and tsunami in Japan had severe consequences for their economy, and it disrupted supply chains in markets uh, around the globe. Crude oil prices also ramped up uh, beginning at the end of last year um, as the outlook for global demand started picking up at around the same time. And further increases earlier this year were driven by the conflicts that occurred, that have been occurring in oil-producing states in the Middle East and North Africa. Retail gasoline prices here in the United States rapidly followed suit. They trail along with uh, crude oil prices in a fairly rapid fashion. And that increase in retail gasoline prices further dampened consumer spending uh, at the end of the springtime. As this year has unfolded and the effects of these temporary factors have ebbed, as the temporary factors have sort of faded and gone away, it's become apparent to many of us that there are more persistent factors that are impeding growth in our economy. Now, there, there are a number of candidate explanations that are plausible, 
But I'll warn you that it's very difficult to pin down in any quantitatively meaningful sense the relative contributions of these, these different uh, hypotheses, these different candidate explanations for what's keeping growth so sluggish. So I'm going to provide some hypotheses now, but I warn you, economists are not able at this time to say this is 20% of the problem, that's 50%. We're still exploring, we're still doing research on these things. <clears throat> so first, I think, uh, this is what I'd put first, a range of observers have pointed out that changes in tax and regulatory policy, both actual changes that have occurred and changes that are anticipated to perhaps be occurring are capable of dampening output and consumption growth and limiting hiring and investment. Now the, the list of economically significant uh, recent and prospective policy changes should be familiar to most audiences. It would include enactment of very far-reaching health care reform. Uh, much of the regulations for that haven't been put in effect yet. It would include financial reform bill enacted in the last year or two, um, as well as significant shifts that are taking place in environmental and labor regulations. And we actually got an earful um, about both environmental and, and, and labor regulations uh, in our visits today. And uh, chuckles indicate that there's some <laughs> familiarity with well, what we might have gotten an earful uh, of. So we've, we've been hearing anecdotal reports from around our district. And again, this is this is an instance where matching up sort of what the data is telling you with what people on the ground are telling you has just been crucial here. We've heard many anecdotal reports from around our district of how uncertainty around the direct impact of these kinds of changes is actually discouraging firms from making new hiring or investment commitments. The federal budget outlook is another source of uncertainty that plausibly could be dampening growth right now. Federal deficit is uh, currently about 10% of GDP. This is an incredibly large amount, unprecedented in peacetime. Realistic projections show that under current policy, federal debt will outpace national income. And that'll happen for decades to come. And as a result, the ratio of the debt outstanding we have to ourselves to total income, the size of the economy, GDP, that ratio will increase without bound for decades to come under current policies. That simply is not feasible. It will not happen. It cannot happen. At, at some point, you bust the budget. At some point before you bust the budget, financial markets catch on and won't let you go that far. The experience of Southern Europe, I think, should serve as a cautionary note. I think that demonstrates that the real world ultimately will place a cap on our debt if our own government fails to do so. Now, it's not clear how our broken federal fiscal situation is going to be fixed, but the list of potential fixes covers just about the entire economy. Uh, so taxpayers vulnerable to higher marginal tax rates program beneficiaries vulnerable to potential cuts in, in benefit payments, government employees, uh, suppliers to government agencies, all vulnerable to cuts in their areas. Um, in fact, we've heard from uh, around the D.C. area where there's a heavy concentration, obviously, of uh, federal government-related businesses that the cloudy outlook for federal spending is already having a noticeable 
activity, uh, effect on economic activity, a dampening effect, particularly in office space and the like. I mean, there's, there's definitely a sense of a slowdown coming and people are preparing for it and hunkering down. So I should note here something about this. So um, I, I don't mention that list of potential budget problem fixes to complain about any one or another. That's not the point. Some, some of those have to be enacted one way or another. It's just that a broad range of people are uncertain. They don't know what the rules of the game are going forward. And we hear this as often from our business contacts as we hear complaints about particular policies. We hear them say, just tell us the rules of the game and we can go forward. We can make a commitment, having a better sense of the implications, financial and otherwise, for us. Another factor that appears to be impeding the recovery is the magnitude of the mismatch of skills between the unemployment and the unemployed and the needs of a growing economy. So all recessions and recoveries um, involve shifting resources from before the recession to after, shifting resources from some economic sectors to the other to others. And that's because the composition of the growth and the expansion is seldom the exact mirror image of the composition of the contraction. So the industries that shrink aren't the ones that expand. The industries that expand aren't the ones that shrink. So many of the workers that exit declining industries in the downturn, they're eventually going to find work in some newly expanding industry in the recovery. But that process can take time to find the, you know, the, the, the different industry, to find the different geographic region where those jobs are, are being uh, offered. And it can take retraining, either funded themselves or funded by their new employer um, or, so, or by some government program. And the, the reason is, it comes back to skills. The skills of the industries that are required in the industries that are expanding seldom line up precisely with the skills of the people that have exited some declining industry that isn't going to expand as rapidly in the future. And the, the, you know, the obvious intuition, intuitive case here is the huge contraction and construction employment we've seen. And that largely involves construction workers. And then picture the industries expanding. Those um, building capital goods, equipment and software, or export-oriented uh, manufacturing, for example, where higher level of skills required for the typical high-skilled manufacturing um, operation these days. This process of sectoral reallocation might well be a more prominent feature of this recession and recovery than in the past. And that could be resulting in a greater skill mismatch than uh, we've experienced in past recessions and recoveries. And that could be impeding the pace of recovery. And again, I'll warn you, um, this is something that's been hard to pin down empirically. There are some indicators. Uh, the, the tremendously large pool, historically, unusually large pool of long-term unemployed um, at this point in the recovery, for example, that are suggestive, that sort of support this notion. Um, but pinning this down and proving this has been hard to do. So let me pull together all these threads and give you my assessment. My sense of the economic outlook is not terribly different from the what I call the conventional view, conventional view of, of forecasters. The central tendency among professional economic forecasters right now is that overall economic activity is going to con continue to grow at a modest pace over the near term somewhere between 2 and 3 percent. 
and I'd agree with that assessment. Like most forecasters, I think the most likely scenario is for the rate of growth to gradually strengthen over the next two years. But I personally would not be surprised if instead growth remained fairly modest over that time horizon and didn't pick up from the 2 to 3 percent range. And I say that because there's enough uncertainty in my mind regarding the current impediments to growth that I can't rule out a somewhat less robust path. And I just have to be honest with you about that. So that's my assessment. Continued moderate growth, about the sluggish pace we're seeing right now, 2 to 3 percent. I may part company with some forecasters on the inflation outlook, though. Last year, inflation, as measured by the price index for personal consumption expenditures, um, our favorite and methodologically preferred measure, was 1.4 percent. 2010, 1.4 percent inflation. And in my mind, that's, that's right where inflation ought to be. Uh, over time. This year, however, starting in December, so, so far this year, year to date, inflation has averaged 3.3 percent at an annual rate. Now, the surge in energy prices has played an important role, uh, and I, as I noted earlier, that surge was temporary, uh, transitory. Indeed, crude oil prices have declined substantially uh, since April. But inflation in other categories has risen as well this year. So I'm going to take a look at the core inflation index. That's the index that strips out food and energy prices. Um, and I, I cite that not because that's our target. Our target is overall inflation. Um, but just to get a sense of how non-food and energy prices are doing, let's look at core inflation. It's averaged 2.2% at an annual rate this year. And last year, it was 1.5%. So outside of food and energy, a broad range of prices have picked up uh, their rate of increase. So I agree with the analysts who say that we've probably seen the highest monthly uh, readings for overall inflation this year because the recent declines in crude oil prices mean gas retail gasoline prices aren't going to be going up four or five percent a month anymore. But personally, I doubt that overall inflation is going to be much below two on a sustained basis. Moreover, I think our experience coming out of past recessions is indicative here. I think it suggests that the risks to inflation at this point in the business cycle, despite uh, the high unemployment rate, lie to the upside. So I do not believe we should relax our vigilance about inflation right now. So I've yet to mention monetary policy, uh, and I, 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 didn't, I haven't mentioned so far for good reason. Uh, my reading of the evidence right now and the situation we're in is that the strength of this recovery is going to be relatively independent of our monetary policy choices from here on out. The factors likely to be restraining growth, the things I cited, uh, are non-monetary and largely beyond the power of a central bank to offset through easier monetary conditions. History has repeatedly demonstrated that if a central bank attempts to add monetary stimulus to offset non-monetary disturbances to growth, the result is usually higher inflation that can be difficult and costly to eliminate. That is why I opposed the maturity extension program uh, that was adopted at the last Federal Open Market Committee meeting. This is popularly known as Operation Twist, and it's uh, an initiative in which the Fed simultaneously buys long-term Treasury securities, 
remaining maturities of six years or more, and simultaneously sells short-term Treasury securities, maturities of three years or less. The effect of these operations is uncertain, um, but, but I think all agree it's likely to be on the small side. My sense, though, is that the main effect is going to be to raise inflation somewhat and to have fairly minor effects on growth. So I think the main effect would be on inflation. At the September meeting, the FOMC also decided to reinvest principal payments from holdings of agency debt and agency mortgage-backed securities in agency mortgage-backed securities instead of U.S. Treasury securities. So we take a step back and give you a little background on this. Uh, you'll recall that in um, late 2008, early 2009, um, the Federal Reserve began buying the debt of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. That's what agency refers to, Fannie and Freddie. Um, these are mortgage-backed securities, and they also issued direct debt. We began buying those in an attempt to heal what was at that time a, a dysfunctional market for mortgage-backed securities and to aid the housing market. Um, we accumulated, by the time we stopped purchases in the middle of uh, 2010, uh, about one and a quarter trillion dollars of these securities. After that, we began letting the portfolio run off. So right away, there were securities in that portfolio that were maturing, where we were getting the principal and interest payment back, and we just let that shrink our portfolio. Uh, then in August of last year, 2010, we changed our mind and decided that we would take the, the proceeds of that portfolio and reinvest it in treasury securities. Now, what that did was mean that the size of our portfolio wouldn't fall just due to the repayment of principal, but it kept us on track to gradually shift our portfolio away from mortgage-backed securities back into treasuries only, which is what traditionally we've always done. Going back decades to our founding, it's been mostly treasury securities, virtually all treasury securities. So we were headed back to a transition to treasuries only. The Fed's decision at its last meeting to reinvest those, uh, the maturing MBS proceeds in other agency MBS securities um, effectively means that we're going to maintain the size of our MBS portfolio and we're not going to, for now, we're not going to take any steps to return to treasuries only. I was also unwilling to support this decision. Now, I recognize the value uh, that my colleagues saw of reducing retail mortgage rates by reducing the spread the, between the yields on mortgage-backed securities and treasury securities. But doing that is going to cause an offsetting increase in the spreads that other borrowers paid. And it's not obvious to me uh, that the net effect on borrowing or growth is going to be positive. More broadly, as a matter of principle, uh, I think it is simply inappropriate for a central bank to attempt to channel credit towards some economic sectors and away from others. I just don't think that's an appropriate role for a central bank. So before closing, let me share a few thoughts about the Federal Reserve System. Uh, it's a, we're an institution that's frequently in the news these days. Um, we make a, you know, we're the subject of extended discussions in um, primary debates and the like. Um, not a comfortable position for us, not what we're used to. Uh, so um, many observers have commented on the fact that uh, three voting members 
dissented at each of the last two meetings of the Federal Open Market Committee. And that hasn't happened since the early 1990s. This, in my view, is no cause for alarm. Economists can reach different conclusions based on legitimate scientific uncertainty about the structure of the economy and about current economic conditions. Reasonable economic policymakers can disagree, just as reasonable Supreme Court justices can, can and do disagree. In my experience as a Federal Open Market Committee participant since 2004, the committee has functioned with an exceptional level of collegiality. Differences have been aired candidly and respectfully, and the give and take of debate has greatly strengthened the FOMC's understanding of the policy decisions that have come before us. The fact that diverse and independent views are brought to bear on important policy questions I think is attributable in part to the unique federated structure of the Federal Reserve System. When the Fed was founded in 1913, Congress deliberately rejected a monolithic model of the European central banks at the time, a single institution headquartered Washington, New York, say. Instead, they chartered these 12 separate reserve banks, each with a board of directors that appoints their reserve bank president, subject to the approval of the Board of Governors in Washington, D.C. By doing so, Congress deliberately sought to insulate policymaking from election-induced swings that can distort decision-making by detracting from the focus on longer-run considerations that are so important when you're making policy in an area like monetary policy. This is why the recently proposed legislation that aims at stifling dissent by removing presidents from the FOMC would be so harmful. It would make my life a little less busy, but I think it would be harmful. By limiting the diversity of independent views around the table, I think such measures would undermine what's been a, a critical and historic strength of the Federal Reserve System. So I have to add a note to this discussion of the Federal Reserve System. Whenever I talk about the independence, the, uh, our, the, the way our structure insulates us from month-to-month -month pressure, political pressures, I have to mention this. So we're, we're fairly unique within the array of U.S. government institutions, um, but at the same time we enjoy that, that, that independence for setting monetary policy instruments. We are and remain highly transparent and strongly accountable to the American people. We submit a semi-annual monetary policy report to Congress. This is required by law. It spells out our assessment of current economic and financial conditions. It describes what we've been doing with policy. It describes why we think what's going on is going on. We send Chairman Bernanke up to testify about that monetary policy report and he exposes himself to questioning from a huge range of legislators on the topic. We all, all our participants in the FOMC, speak before the public, and we all offer ourselves up to, to be questioned by you about economic outcomes. And in case you're wondering, we are audited, too. <laughs> um, we publish externally audited financial statements, um, we are regularly audited by what's called the GAO, the Government Accountability Office. In fact, at any one time, they've got a good dozen or two audits underway uh, as we speak. In fact, if you want to learn more, you can go to federalreserve.gov. 
and in the upper right hand corner you'll find a button that says does the Fed get audited? And the answer is obviously yes and if you click on that you'll find a wealth of information. I'll mention one other example as well. Every Thursday afternoon we publish the balance sheet of the entire Federal Reserve System, every single bank, as of the day before. Over a two trillion dollar entity and we're publishing our balance sheet within 24 hours every single week. So I think we're an, we've become an even more transparent organization as a result of what we've been through and um, I know that, that we conduct our business in a spirit of um, very strong accountability to the American people for, for the outcomes we bring about. So let me close by leaving you with one final thought about the economic outlook. So I recognize that the prospect of relatively sluggish growth in the near term is uninspiring and that's particularly true to the extent to which it implies that unemployment seems likely to remain at a relatively elevated level for some time. But at the same time, the modest rate of growth we're seeing in the economic aggregates, the sum of activity across our country, masks very significant economic dynamics that are going on at ground level. Opportunities continue to arise for individual firms to innovate and grow and for individuals to invest in expanding their talents. And we saw examples of that today uh, in our travels uh, in, your, in your area. These are the dynamics that in the past have ultimately restored long-term economic growth after an economic disruption. And I remain confident that these same creative forces um, are with us today. Thank you very much for your attention. It's been a delight to speak to you. I'd be happy to take questions. We have time for a few questions. If you would please uh, stand and uh, let us know who you are and what you're representing today, whether it's business or personal concern, and uh, uh, do that for our, our guests. I'd appreciate it. Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Good question. Um, community, it's about community banks and um, how vital they are to the health of a, a region like this, a relatively rural region like this. Um, you know, my guess is, I haven't looked at the data for this area, my guess is they dominate deposit markets and lending markets around here. Community banks have a very important role in the economy because um, unlike the larger banks, they can um, do more bespoke lending, more customized lending. They can um, tailor terms to um, particular um, borrowers can do more what economists call information intensive lending as opposed to sort of more rule based lending that larger institutions are of necessity uh, sometimes limited to. Uh, the community banking industry has gone through uh, some terrible stresses and strains in the last couple of years. Uh, they were affected later than the larger financial institutions in this downturn. Um, they've, um, many of them, have uh, suffered substantial losses, uh, uh, particularly in commercial lending, particularly related to real estate in the form of 
loans related to acquisition, land development, um, residential real estate development. So the thing to note is that um, there's a, there are a lot of differences going into this recession in strategies and ability to execute at community banks. And so the experiencing of the recession, the effect of the recession has been, very, has been varied across community banks. Some have suffered tremendously with large losses in their capital, um, and uh, some so much so that we, we've had to close them, or the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation has to close them. Others suffered losses but are gonna survive, but in the meantime, their regulators have told them their capital ratio has to increase, and there's two ways to do that. One is to raise new capital, but that can be very expensive. The other way is to shrink the denominator, the amount of assets. And so for some banks, they're not that eager either to expand business or to retain business. And so some of the anecdotes, I think some of the anecdotes we've heard and maybe many of you have heard or maybe some of you have experienced and are, are able to tell of people being um, uh, sort of encouraged to take their business elsewhere by a lender relate to this. Now, on the other hand, there, there is a, a substantial number of community banks that pursued more conservative strategies, or let's put it less judgmentally, pursued strategies that um, turned out well, fared better in this recession, and who have capital. Those are competing fiercely for creditworthy borrowers. Uh, at least that's our experience, and all the data we, we show from, from their balance sheet and er, uh, other things we're seeing suggest that. So. This is a time where it pays more than ever to search around if you're a borrower. Uh, search around for banks, shop around, you know, find that bank that's eager to, to do business with you. But it's also a time where there's a certain cautionary note that I have to provide, which is that a borrower today um, is less credit worthy than an identical borrower five years ago. Same balance sheet, same revenue, same cash flow. The economic environment today is riskier and more uncertain, and that makes any given borrower with unchanged circumstances a riskier prospect. And you have to you have to kind of take that on board and deal with it as well. So I hope that answers your question about community banks. Back here. Chris. So it's a broad question because there was a lot going on in 2008 and 2009. Um, so there were um, capital infusions and there were some special lending that went on. Um, I'd differentiate, I'd separate those two. Um, I think what happened with Bear Stearns and AIG, you have to put in a separate category. Um, the capital infusions um, that... Um, uh, came out of the TARP program, the $700 billion um, that was enacted by Congress in October of 2008. I think at that point in our history, um, we're an unfortunate necessity. And the reason I say that is that um, 
at the point that bill was brought to Congress um, in 2008, seven different financial institutions of fairly substantial size had been, um, had failed or been merged and resolved in six different ways. Bear Stearns with an assisted merger, uh, Washington Mutual, IndyMac, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Lehman Brothers, AIG. And when I say in different ways, it was a different point in the capital structure that the government stepped in and said, this side, you don't bear losses. This side, you do bear losses. At, at the point we found ourselves after AIG and then after um, Wachovia, it would have been hard, you know, it, it would have been impossible for anyone in the private sector to divine from looking at those cases just what, just which part of the cap, which, um, which lending would be supported, which creditors would be supported in a large financial institution, which ones would. Now, conceivably, Chairman Paulson could have announced, all right, here's the new plan. But before Lehman, he said, we're not going to bail out Lehman, and then turned around with AIG. I think there was, I think the feeling was there was no clean place to draw a line that you could feel would be credible and that you could defend. And so the only place to draw a line is around the whole thing. So they, and the only way to do that was with substantial fiscal resources. And I think that's what necessitated the approach to Congress to get uh, what looked like an, a, an incredibly large amount of resources to make sure that everyone who's solvent in the financial system would get capital support. Um, I think that the, the stress, the, there was this initial round of injections um, and conditions remained volatile after that initial round of injections in October up until um, May. And what, ha what changed in May was uh, the stress test that we did. Um, so this was an exercise where we took the top 19 banks, Federal Reserve in cooperation with other regulators, and said, um, tell us what your capital is going to be two years from now under the following macroeconomic scenario in which the recession gets worse than we think it's going to be. And they submitted their estimates. We poured over all the details. We second-guessed a lot of it. We adjusted a lot of the numbers. We made it more comparable. And they announced the results. Now, the key thing that we announced with that announcement was um, companies that need more capital to have enough in two years to survive, they need to raise that capital privately by November. If they raise the capital by November, we will not inject more government capital. If they can't raise the capital by November, we will. In essence, this provided a bound on the extent to which the current shareholders of those firms would get diluted by further government capital injection. So sort of a complicated little story here, but I think the, the companies were all waiting, investors were all waiting to find out, well, if I invest now and then the company gets in trouble and the government invests more capital, then I've gotten diluted, so I'm going to wait until I know the government's not going to invest anymore. And so this provided kind of the all clear. It gave a sign of, all right, in November, we're going to know who needs more capital and who doesn't. Um, so I think that was the key to the success of the capital injection program. Without uh, a treatise, that's about as best as I can do. <laughs> Anyone on this side of the room? I'm sort of focused over here. Okay. I'll go back here. We talked earlier. 
Go ahead. Uh, Laura Mitchell, City Council. Um, it's commonly thought that there is a some percentage, I'm not sure what percentage, I'm interested in your perspective, of the foreclosed houses that have not necessarily been accounted for uh, by the banking industry as yet. And I'm interested in how significant that, that figure is really good question. Um, foreclosures are a tr have been a tremendous problem uh, for the banking industry and for the country and for housing markets uh, nationwide. Um, you know, uh, companies staff for working through problem loans and the staff you need in good times is way insufficient in, in troubled times and we're in very troubled times in the housing market obviously. Um, so the, the situation differs a lot across the country. Um, so the, the, the mortgage servicers are working through their portfolios. Um, I think that they've all identified who now might, um, you know, ought to, where the best resolution for all concerned is to go to foreclosure. I think that identification is made. Um, it's just that in, 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 there's some states where these, where, where um, foreclosures are handled via uh, judicial processes that there are huge backlogs, that the judicial process is clogged. And so there are, I've heard of backlogs of 20 months or more um, where, you know, companies got all these mortgages that they know are going to foreclosure and it's going to take 20 months to get through the queue. There are other states, a lot of other states where the queue's been cleared out and they're just operating on, um, the foreclosures they're, they're filing now are the ones that arise in the normal course of business today. So they haven't been sitting on it a while. It's just the things that come up today. So they're caught up as it were. Um, you know, foreclosure's not a happy circumstance for anyone. Um, but, um, you know, there are, there are homeowners and, you know, borrowers and homes that are bad matches for each other in the sense that the home is too much or the mortgage is too large. They're not gonna be able to afford it even if you negotiate it down. Um, and, um, uh, you know, foreclosure is the best option for all concerned. Um, the slowness in those foreclosures, in that foreclosure backlog, slows down the process of the housing market finding its equilibrium in those markets. So it means an overhang of people that are sort of getting free rent. They know they're going to be foreclosed on, so they're not, they don't have an incentive to pay. They're staying on. Um, the house probably isn't being maintained as well as it ought to be. Um, so there's a process, there's a future ahead where that person is in a home they can afford that's right for them, and someone else has the opportunity to take advantage of that house. We're delaying, the, the, it's, it's just delaying, the stretch out of mortgage foreclosures has delayed that. I think it'll be a couple of years before we're, we're caught up, um, and that's the basis for forecasts I see for many that it's gonna be the middle of this decade before we see a pickup in housing construction before there's any net increase in in the demand for housing above the, the housing stock we have. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it.